0: Uh, It is such an honor to be with you folks, and I especially enjoy the fact that the topic or the organizing group here is evangelical voices in the academy. How wonderful that is. So I hope and pray that I get to be one of those evangelical voices in the academy. Um, For um, IT stuff, I should have mentioned this before, I am going to be showing some pictures. Is it possible to dim just this quadrant? And if not, that's fine, people just have to squint. That's all there is to it. All right, so our topic for today is uh, dating Deuteronomy via economics and my trendy little title, what's money got to do with it? Because money's got everything to do with it. This is a selection from a subject I've been invested in for a couple of years now. And the study of the book of Deuteronomy in this particular um, uh, approach has to do with an economic lens. So for those of you who are economic majors, uh, you know that economics is the study of mankind in the ordinary business of life. It is not simply the study of wealth, it is the study of man. Alfred Marshall in this publication, Principles of Economics is considered the great patriarch of the discipline, and I love that. It is not simply the study of wealth, but the study, I would say, of humanity. Therefore, in studying a book like Deuteronomy through an economic lens, we're not simply investigating economic processes. Rather, we're investigating the societal norms and people who inhabit the book. And as economic life permeates through every aspect of humanity, the economic structures of ancient Israel undoubtedly had a profound impact on society and consequently the formation of biblical literature. I agree. Hence, my thesis has been that an economic read of the book of Deuteronomy should be instructive regarding the age old question of the social location of the book. Toward this end, I've spent a great deal of time surveying the economies of Israel's experience from the settlement period through the collapse of the monarchy on to the restoration under the Persian period, identifying the quantifiable economic features of each in rural and urban areas, and then juxtaposing those features to the contents of Ur Deuteronomium that is fancy scholar speak for the historically reconstructed core of the book, the earliest version of the book. The essential idea as this text emerges from real people in real space and time, the culturally embedded economic realities of this book, forthrightly addressed as an aspect of narrative or law, alluded to via metaphor or backdrop, or even mistakenly included as anachronism, Should have something to teach us regarding the social locations of the book. In Bible speak, the provenance of the book of Deuteronomy. So let's speak for a moment about the book itself. In Hebrew, the title of this book is These Are the Words. How appropriate is this, yeah? That God's constitution and bylaws for the nation that he has just rescued from Egypt would be these are the words. The words by which you will structure your society. These are the words that you will use to order your private and public worlds. The English name of the book, Deuteronomy, emerges from the Greek deuteros namas, meaning a second law. This is actually a mistranslation of Deuteronomy 17:18, where the king to come is commanded to write for himself a copy of this law, and we translated that a second law. But even as a mistranslation of Deuteronomy 17, 18, we wind up understanding that Deuteronomy is indeed a new exposition of an older law. Deuteronomy is a reiteration of the law of Sinai for the next generation. The question that is always on the table for which next generation? Okay, according to the biblical narrative that you know and love, the generation that we're speaking of is the one that has just exited the land of Egypt. The first issuing of this law at Sinai transformed a slave race into a holy nation, a people for God's own inheritance. And we know that after one year at Sinai, this holy nation is led to the southern boundary of the promised land, only to fail miserably, be chased away by the Canaanites, and spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. After 40 years of wilderness sanctification, that's my Wesleyan roots there, uh, God says, let's try this again. And Moses leads them to the eastern boundary of the promised land, for take two. On a map, that looks something like this. I like doing it, so I'm going to do it again, like that. Okay, so on the plains of Moab, just east of Jericho, Moses offers his very last sermon. Surely the longest sermon ever preached anywhere, anytime. And in this sermon, he reiterates the law that was first given at Sinai, now offered to a new generation, He turns the reins over to Joshua, climbs a mountain, and dies. Talk about a dramatic ending. His his sermon is the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you for that. Okay, so on a timeline, it looks something like this. Moses and the exit from uh, the land of Egypt. Hence, according to the biblical understanding of Israelite history, the contents of Deuteronomy should be dated somewhere here, somewhere in the late Bronze Iron I settlement era with the initial literary composition of the core of the book, what we're calling Ur Deuteronomium, somewhere shortly thereafter. This is how it should look. Ah, but then comes our friend Julius Velhausen. A handsome fellow indeed, and whereas in his 19th century epistemological paradigm, a document of this theological sophistication, i.e. Deuteronomy, could not possibly be dated to the 11th and 12th century BCE, he seeks another solution. And his other solution will take you back to intro to Old Testament hermeneutics class, perhaps a little bit of, I don't know, PTSD here. Um, <laughs> as you recall, Wellhausen, standing on the shoulders of his 19th century presuppositions, re-identifies the book of Deuteronomy as one of four literary sources for the Pentateuch. And he places it within his three-stage evolutionary paradigm of Israelite religion and dates it his linchpin to the seventh century BCE. The end result is this handy dandy little chart that I will sell for a very small fee where Julius Wellhausen's work uh, communicates three stages of the evolution of Israelite religion. His work was a brilliantly articulated and therefore extremely influential treatment of this three-stage evolution of Israel's deity and the Torah of Israel, which moved, of course, as all developmental paradigms should, from the simple to the complex. And Deuteronomy, stage two, as it is highlighted, became the linchpin of his system. So when King Josiah in 621 BC of the southern kingdom claims to have found a copy of the law in the temple in 2 Kings chapter 22 and leads his nation in reform as a result, Wellhausen concludes that Josiah didn't find anything. What Josiah did is he hired a scribe, a propagandist, in order to create a document, compose this second law, and he promulgated it as what some have called a pious fraud in order to consolidate his political power. How would Deuteronomy consolidate his political power? Well, the first thing it would create is something called the Deuteronomistic correction, which means that the D source will now look back on the previous theologians and say, no, not quite that, we're gonna change it a little bit. And the way we're going to change it is what we discussed at lunch today, the name theology, that the word name becomes a partial presence of the deity in the temple, and therefore everyone has to come to Jerusalem to worship, and Josiah is able to collect their offerings, their tributes, and their loyalty. So as a result, our book of Deuteronomy, according to Wellhausen and Devet was placed into the seventh century and in most academic circles has stayed there ever since. But one of the great weaknesses of Velhausen's theory was that archeology, span epigraphy, the comparative study of biblical literature and history did not exist in his day. This is 1868. Brilliant as he was, Velhouse's historical treatment of the Pentateuch was based almost entirely on an internal literary read of the Bible, which was influenced, of course, by the dominant historiographic and philosophical theories of his day. He had access to almost no external benchmarks. The Rosetta Stone, an Egyptian, had only just been deciphered. There was no Ugaritic. Can you imagine that? No Ugaritic. There was no historical geography, almost no archeology. span So severe is this flaw to the normative stature of Velhausen's paradigm that Doug Knight, in his forward to the republication of the Prolegomena in 1994, states it this way. The prolegomena, Wellhausen's work, must be regarded as a period piece, unthinkable except for its setting in late 19th century German biblical scholarship. Ah, But paradigms are not dismantled easily in biblical studies. And so Deuteronomy in most circles remains in the seventh century. So back to our timeline, which looks something like this. Moses, where's Moses? Whoops, I took Moses off my timeline. Okay, this is why I needed to go over my slides. Um, Whereas Deuteronomy should be dated something like this, according to the narrative structure, somewhere in the settlement period, according to most of the academy, it actually emerges in the late southern monarchy during the Neo-Assyrian period. Now, for those of you who have not seen my handy dandy timeline, this is the Bible's account of biblical history. And so it starts up at the tree with Eden. Notice their question marks, can't really date that stuff. Um, and uh, it keeps wrapping. So that by the time you get right here, you are entering divided monarchy. And the northern branch is the northern kingdom and the southern branch, the southern kingdom, where Josiah should be. This is Josiah's eras. And the newest theories, actually, regarding the provenance of the book of Deuteronomy, place it all the way here. And that would be the Persian period after the return from the exile and the restoration of the exilic community. So the question If we juxtapose what we now know of these eras economically, and we now know a good bit, to the contents of the book of Deuteronomy, might we be able to locate the contents of the book within one of those eras? Sounds reasonable. Let's see what we can do. All right, heading back to economics, the study of mankind in the ordinary business of life. As our economists know, economic behavior may be described in three categories, production, consumption, and distribution. Within these categories, the mechanisms by which a household, a polity, or an empire obtains wealth are an essential part of daily life and therefore will have distinct consequences for individuals on every level of society. And these mechanisms may be tracked via material remains. Grinding stones, threshing floors, storage silos, faunal remains, carbonized seeds, all have a tale to tell regarding local production and consumption. Wineries, apiaries, and distribution and trade, booty and tribute lists, and the final resting place of artifacts serve to identify trade networks, and the synthesis of this physical evidence bring the economics of the Iron Age in the Southern Levant into focus. So let's begin with the Israelite economy in the Iron One. And as you can see on the screen, that's 1200 to about 985 BC. It is now universally recognized that the highlands of ancient Canaan were the heartland of what would become the nation of Israel. The region was rugged, with limited access to fresh water and little bottom land for our agriculture. The populace was clustered into hundreds of rural villages with populations between two and 300. That wouldn't even make a decent country church. Organized around extended families of 15 to 20 persons, all of whom were invested in the all-encompassing task of survival. Survival for this newly sedentary populace came by means of the dry farming of barley and wheat, cereals being a standard essential to any newly settled people group, on terraced hillsides, complemented by an ongoing practice of mixed animal husbandry. In this economy, bovines, that would be cows, oxen, were for labor, while mixed herds of sheep and goats balanced the risk inherent in the rugged terrain, providing wool, meat, and milk. This was a subsistence economy, whose strategy was to preserve subsistence resources at an optimal level in order to sustain household requirements. Long-term agriculture of grapes and olives would emerge toward the end of the period. These smallholders, as Carol Newsom likes to call them, lived on farmsteads and in simple villages with minimal permanent architecture. Defense construction was extremely limited, rather flocks and silos were actually housed within low walls keeping them inside the family compound and often domestic dwellings Uh, marked the exterior of the human habitat with the back walls of the houses shielding the village and low non-defense walls further demarcating the perimeters of our human habitat. This design will dissipate with the end of the Iron One when real fortifications are facilitated by the means of centralized government and the resources supplied by corvée labor and taxation. Storage was also minimal, and unlike the large elevated structures possible during the Iron II period, Iron I facilities were targeted at sustaining the family unit, hence small lined family silos for grain and simple plastered lined cisterns for water. The image you're looking at right here is a reconstruction created by Larry Stager and one of his artists about what a rural family compound would look like. Now, there is a paucity of trade uh, in the Iron One, very little evidence. Rather, most conclude that this was what we call a closed economy, conservative and self-sufficient, in which reciprocity, that's movement between symmetrical groups, was the primary motivation for exchange. And exchange was primarily in kind. I will trade you my goat for three and a half homers of barley. So in kind, non-monetary, with small scale redistribution occurring by means of cultural institutions, such as holy sites. In other words, if you want to make a trade, you go to the tabernacle to make your trade. And although interaction with the larger, still present Canaanite urban centers, their trade routes and their port cities certainly occurred, such interaction was limited. Metal of all sorts was scarce, and as Steger and King said years ago, householding rather than market exchange was paramount. These guys are our beloved hillbillies, literally in the hills and with a very simple lifestyle. Now, with the dawning of the Iron II period, oh, closed economy. Okay, with the dawning of the Iron II period, uh, we see a massive change in economy. Population growth, agricultural intensification, and most important, the onset of state formation creates a brand new economic zone. For with state formation comes economic centralization and state-sponsored redistribution. And that means movements of goods to and from a center. Wealth and labor can now be collected from the periphery stored and then redistributed in some form. You live in a redistribution economy. Um, Wealth and labor then is going to be collected in capital cities, in trade cities, and one result is that throughout the Iron II period in both Israel and Judah, we're gonna see a dramatic shift in architecture. Whereas the Iron I period is characterized by a dearth of public architecture, the opposite is true of the Iron II. Villages and cities are fortified, public storage buildings are built, water systems are constructed, monumental architecture abounds, industrial production centers appear and multiply, and we can track all of these through the archaeological record. Trade networks are going to be secured and expanded as evinced by permanent markets, foreign goods in the wrong places, a shift in settlement pattern, and references to foreign markets in the biblical text. The transformation of Samaria and Jerusalem during the Iron II period, where they go from very local hubs to elaborate monumental cities, definitely testifies that these capitals have become centers of economic redistribution and royal patronage. Monumental architecture, the Samaria Ostraca, the Sumeri Ivories, all of which you're looking at on the screen, all illustrate the distillation of wealth from the periphery into the coffers of the capital, as well as the international character of that wealth. John Holliday pointedly adds to this picture a silver-based economy. Whereas low-value money, that would be grain or livestock, could and had functioned efficiently in the local non-monetized exchange of goods typical to the reciprocal economy of the Iron I, the broadly-based redistributive economy of the emerging Iron II period was going to require a fully medium of exchange. In other words, money. Not the kind of money you know yet, but money all the same. Taking Menachem as a parade example, uh, this is Israel's tribute to tiglath pileser III in the latter half of the eighth century. We find that according to our biblical text, it was apparently possible for an Israelite king to assess one Mesopotamian mina of silver from every extended family in the Northern Kingdom. That's a big deal. Moreover, it was possible for him to do so quickly. Holiday logically concludes that there must already have been some established fail-safe system for gathering up and forwarding large quantities of wealth reliably to the Northern capital, which would be Samaria. This portrayal of a silver-based economy is expanded by the 15 separate descriptions of tribute paid out to foreign powers in the Book of Kings. A few of them are listed here and also the comparison with other major uh, civilizations and cities of the time. What this shows us is that an immense amount of gold and silver bullion are being exchanged between the kings of Judah and Israel and their adversaries between 925 and 597 BC, the iron II period. So clearly the monarchy had brought with it a silver-based medium of exchange both locally and internationally, and we can find silver. But you may ask, where is all this silver coming from? We all know there's no native source of silver in this region. Where are they getting all this bullion? Well, Christine Thompson has done a lovely job of educating us in her sealed silver and Iron Age Jordan, and she demonstrates that there was a proliferation of the monetary use of silver in the Levant during the Iron Age marked by 34 sealed silver hoards in the region. This is the largest identified concentration of silver in the entire ancient Near East, and did I mention that there is no native source of silver in the region? The proliferation begins in the 12th century, that's the settlement period, the Iron One, and it continues into the 8th and 6th centuries, which is the end of the monarchy. Um, and Josiah's era, with an early concentration to be found in the great seaports, well there's no surprise, of Akko, Ashkelon, Dor, and the major land trade routes of Ein-Hofez, Megiddo, and B'tshan. As you look at that map, you should be analyzing why there's silver in those regions. Thompson argues that this distribution of silver is to be associated with a growing trade relationship between the Phoenician port cities and the Arabian desert caravans. You were looking at the Kings Highway and the Via Maris and how the wealth off the desert gets to the port cities and beyond. Um, John Holliday and Daniel Master concur. Understanding this rise in silver in the Southern Levant in the 10th century, early on, as the result of taxes and tolls. If you're gonna move your goods through my country, you're gonna pay a tariff. Ah, but the silver in the Iron One era is not actually going through Israel. We are not finding silver in our early villages in the Iron One period. Why? Because it's going around. Our folks, our beloved hillbillies, are up in the central hill country. In the Iron One period, our emerging Israelites are isolated in the hill country. They have no control over the trade routes. This is a closed economy, and there is therefore very little silver in circulation. I'm going to argue to you that this is reflected not only in the ground, but it's reflected in the biblical text as well. That is, of course, until the birth of the monarchy and the Iron II period. And just for fun, a few pictures of camels. (laughs) Because I really like camels. Okay, Um, so back to the topic. As Roger Nam discusses at length, 1st and 2nd Kings portrays Solomon's kingdom as an imperial and redistributive economy in which high value money has emerged as a natural repercussion of a politically powerful center. Both in celebration and in critique, we read of the prefects of Solomon's kingdom, the reorganized tribal districts, corvée labor, 70,000 porters, 80,000 rock cutters, supported by the central government. There are storage cities and international commerce facilitated by ships and camels. Camels are called the ships of the, of the desert for a reason. The text speaks of very much gold in the national treasury, imported products such as tin and woven garments and purple dyed wool and ivory and spices. None of these things come from Israel. Rather, they come into Israel. Indeed, the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he utilized this same silver for the import of cedar from Lebanon and horses and charity from Egypt and when Solomon's successes and centralization ultimately led to the demise of both his state and his economy the references to a money-based redistributive economy remain and expand Hosea pays his bill for Gomer in both high and low value money he pays for her in 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. The barley is low money, the silver is high money, and he castigates cheating merchants and their false scales. What are we weighing on scales? We're weighing silver. Amos rebukes his citizenry for selling the righteous for silver and his king for his ivory house. Alicia prices barley in shekels, and at one point, he actually exhorts a rural widow to sell her oil to pay her debts. Even land is sold for silver. Daniel Master again discusses the rise of the permanent market and career merchants as part of Israel's evolving economy as well. As thoroughly illustrated in Ezekiel 27, the Iron Two society in Israel had vocabulary for merchant merchandise, customer, trade, sale, and permanent markets. By the seventh century, an official silver sale weight system is instituted as is evinced in the ground by hordes of inscripted limestone weights, naming the amount of silver they offset. And this is coming from an array of contexts in Judah. King Johash's temple repair fund, I know that's dense, um, from 2 Kings 12, six through 16, is particularly illustrative. Here we read that priests are collecting silver from the citizenry for the maintenance of the public works that we know as the temple. The silver is collected, it is counted, it is weighed out, it is bagged and tagged, becoming bound silver, something called sror kesef that we'll bump into again in Deuteronomy. exactly the process represented in the weighed, bagged, and uh, tagged bound silver in Christine Thompson's silver hoards. The bullae, the little clay tags on these bags, 21 of Thompson's bundles name another necessary component of the monarchic redistributive economy of the iron two. And that's the official who was hired to weigh the quantity contained in these bags. So Jehoahash's silver is utilized to purchase building supplies and to pay wages. The treasury is overseen by the king. Josiah will repeat this same process of collection and redistribution in his famous 7th century temple reform. And numerous Judean kings will strip this same temple treasury in order to pay off foreign powers in the form of bullion-based tribute. Clearly, bullion, in particular silver, has become the normative means of taxation and exchange in Israel by the Iron II monarchic period. I thought you might enjoy seeing what some of this silver looked like. This is actually called the uh, chocolate bar ingot. For obvious reasons, you would cast your silver in a bar uh, with little breakable prefab pieces. And when you went to market, you could break off one piece, two piece, three piece in order to pay off your merchant. There's also something called a rolled tongue ingot, and you wrap it around a cord around your neck so that you can carry your money with you. Very interesting in the manumission law in Deuteronomy, when you set your slave free. In your Bibles, it reads, supply him generously. What it literally says is make him a necklace. Um, I haven't gotten that one out yet. Very fun. Okay, so... um, This is our hack silver. This is the currency of the Iron II period. So let's turn the page and take a look at the Israelite economy in the Iron II Sea. This is the last phase of Israel's economic evolution prior to the exile. This involves the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. I call them the Borg of the ancient Near East. Resistance is futile. You shall be assimilated. Absolutely. I want you to know that my undergrads have never heard of the Borg. I know, I know, and they keep getting younger every year. It's terrible. Okay, so this is the economy of Israel for which we have the most data. So this is what we know the most about. And here the integrated urban economy of the Iron II period, right, that was flourishing under Solomon and the other kings is completely overhauled into what some would call a command economy. A command economy is an economy that operates from an authoritarian center, that would be Neo-Assyria, in its vassalization of both Israel and Judah. The objective of the empire was to impose state-sponsored initiatives to ensure the continued flow of goods from the periphery to the center. The center, of course, being Nineveh. And transfers were guaranteed by the force. Now, Cy Gittin picks up this reality. He is uh, responsible for Philistine Ekron and speaks of an aggressive policy of economic exploitation of Ekron and attributes the industrialization of olive oil production at his site to an Assyrian policy directive. Dan Master, on the other hand, with his site at Ashkelon, uh, says that the industrialization of Ashkelon for wine production had more to do with the Assyrian exploitation of the existing and expanding Phoenician sea trade than any particular economic finesse on the part of the Neo-Assyrians. K. Lawson Younger and FM Fails make uh, the argument that what we're dealing with is more of a Pax Assyriaca which would be geared toward maximum profit and therefore the best possible management of the provinces and their resources. I'm not sure the guys whose heads are being held up by the Assyrian soldiers would agree about that best for all scenario. But any of these interpretive lenses leave us with a world economy in which different modes of wealth accumulation, are functioning and wide-scale economic specialization is occurring. In Israel, this is evinced in part by the emergence of major industrial zones, designed for massive export of materials and the extensive use of silver, i.e. money, at every level of society. A parade example of this iron to economy is once again a tribute. And this tribute is coming from King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's tribute to Sennacherib in 701 BC is what you're looking at on the screen. Hezekiah sends massive quantities of bullion, 900 kilograms of gold and 24,000 kilograms of silver to his Assyrian overlord to keep him from wiping out his country. Now John Holliday, in a move that has not been celebrated, has translated this bullion into American dollars. For your viewing pleasure, we're looking at about 16 million dollars here. All right, so uh, this parade example shows us that Hezekiah is sending bullion, but more than that, it shows us that Hezekiah has bullion to send. Where did he get this amount of gold and silver in order to pay off his overlord? The Assyrian tribute lists make it equally obvious that bullion is considered the standard medium for such an exchange. You don't send goats and grain to an angry Assyrian overlord, you send him silver and gold. As John Holliday states, wheat, wine, oil were never the dominant tributary tributary requirements for the royal states during the Neo-Assyrian period rather the tributary system was all about money i.e. silver and how is it that our guy Hezekiah has this much silver on hand iron to see judah's longstanding exploitation of the Arabian caravan Mediterranean port city trade network has got to be the answer. In other words, Hezekiah has been collecting his own tariffs and his own taxes in which silver was once again recognized as the medium of international exchange. All right, so now let's turn back to our book, Deuteronomy. Although the standard Iron 2 B and C vocabulary for trade and trader merchandise is present throughout First and Second Kings, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and even the Chronicler and Leviticus, this vocabulary is completely absent from the book of Deuteronomy. And whereas the Deuteronomistic history, the prophets and the chroniclers' history make regular mention of the mechanisms of trade, that would be ships and camels, the only reference to camels in the book of Deuteronomy is the food law of Deuteronomy 14. You don't get to eat camels. (laughs) And ships, they are unnamed in Deuteronomy as well. Standard import items, spices, tin, ivory, elephants, cedar, almug, purple cloth, lyres, harps are completely unknown in the book, as are the geopolitically and economically strategic urban centers that are central to the exchange of these items. And whereas the post-exilic urban community in Jerusalem is so familiar with imported fish coming up from the Western Sea that a gate is actually named the Gate of Fishes in Chronicles and Nehemiah, deuteronomy only has one reference to fish of any sort and once again it's in the dietary laws of chapter 14. and guess what these are local river fish not sea fish in fact the only item on solomon's list of imported items in first kings 10 that makes an appearance in the book of deuteronomy is iron Permanent markets, chutzot, as they're known in the text, also do not exist in Deuteronomy. And perhaps most important, the measures used for exchange in the book are those of a barter system. Thus, whereas the use of precious metal was assumed by trade, uh, for trade by at least the eighth century, it is unnamed in the book of Deuteronomy. What about kings and chariots and horses? Uh, these are the marks of a centralized redistributive economy. These are the marks of a monarchy. As many have noted, outside the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17, there are no such references. To quote Yuhapakala, the monarch plays no role in Ur Deuteronomy. Ur Deuteronomy does not imply any state infrastructure or organization, the monarch, the state, its structures, Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple are completely missing in the document. Now, although I agree with Pakala regarding the marks of centralization in Deuteronomy's Israel, it's important to recognize that kings, professional armies, horses, and chariots actually do occur in the book, but they occur only in reference to the other, not to us. Armies, uh, our, uh, armies and soldiering are also well known as native to the people of this book as our weapons and prisoners of war and the spoils of war. But centralized royal authority, as well as its utilization of the central cult site as a treasury and a redistribution center all over the monarchy, they have no place in our book. Uh, as regards the results of centralization, monumental building. Large or public storage facilities, public markets, fortifications, these two are missing from the core of our book of Deuteronomy. The defense wall of the biblical text, the Choma, occurs only in reference to the other, Deuteronomy 3.5. Forced labor is named once, but again, it's something we do to the other, not to ourselves. As for taxation and tribute, where's the Book of Kings, Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah are replete with allusions to taxation and tribute coming in the form of silver to support the temple, the crown and the suzerain, stored in redistribution centers, typically called the treasures of the temple of Yahweh and the royal treasuries. In the numerous references to contributions and ties brought to the central cult site in Deuteronomy, the citizenry is expected to pay in kind. Seed, grain, new wine, oil, firstborn of the herd or the flock, there are no storehouses, there are no treasuries. Uh, In other words, Deuteronomy's taxation system was non-monetary and reciprocal, designed in part to cement kinship networks. There is one exception. And that exception to this moneyless taxation system is found in Deuteronomy fourteen, twenty-three through twenty-six. Taking a look at this passage, if you can see the print, there are actually two laws recorded here. And the first one is identified by the first square. And it reads, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produce each year. You shall eat in the presence of Yahweh your God at the place where he's chosen to place his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, so that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. But then we see that the law is repeated And it's repeated with a certain um, uh, specification. But if the distance is so great that you are not able to transport the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to place his name is too far away, then you shall exchange it for silver and you will bind it to your hand and you will go to the place that the Lord your God shall choose. You may spend the silver for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Sparing you all the details of historical Hebrew grammar, which I did not spare you over lunch, let me say that I and others have demonstrated that this passage is a doublet. That means that here we have two articulations of the same law. The first iteration of the law is, as we have read in the first box, note that the taxes commanded are brought to the central cult site in kind. The second iteration of the law launches with the specification. If the place is too far away from you, then you may transform your tithe into a fully fungible medium of exchange, i.e. silver, bind it to your hand and buy what's needed when you arrive at the central cult site. Now doublets typically result from a later expansion of an original law in order to resolve evolving circumstances. In other words, at one time or in one context, Deuteronomy 14 specified that the citizens' tithe of grain, wine, oil, and firstborn must go to the tabernacle in kind, And in some different or later scenario, an interpolation was added that specified that if the place is too far, this same tithe might be converted into currency to relieve the onerous difficulties and expense of transport. Note as well the shift of phrase, the place in which Yahweh, your God, chooses to place his name. For all of you who were there over lunch, you are now experts on this passage, And this evolving statement here are actually two different forms of the idiom. The first idiom in the first paragraph, la shikane shemosham, the second idiom in the second paragraph, la sum shemosham, how interesting. Um, On top of that, but if the distance is too great for you, there is one other law in Deuteronomy that has that same introduction. And in that same law, we once again have the second idiom, la sum shimosha. So a doublet, absolutely. Um, the shift in phrase, both linguistically and literarily demonstrates that our law code has been updated based on evolving circumstances. In this case, I believe, These evolving circumstances involve an evolving society in which the dispersion of settlements and a shifting economy has resulted in the need for the mobility of our fully fungible medium of exchange. In other words, money has entered the means of common exchange. So lastly, and most telling is that this exchange in Deuteronomy only rarely involves any sort of currency at all. This in contrast to the Book of Kings where silver is recognized as the standard medium of exchange for everything from wheat to wages to foreign tribute. In contrast, Ur or Deuteronomium, or Deuteronomium's reference to currency may be narrowed to the doublet that we have just examined, the penalties assigned for violating a virgin, in other words, a dowry of some sort, and the prohibition against charging an Israelite brother the interest of silver, which by the way, is juxtaposed to the interest of food. Perhaps another later interpolation. Not only are these occurrences sparse, but each one of them falls into Polanyi, the great economist's first general capacity for money, payment. As Polanyi details, this category of money is common to an as of yet unstratified ancient economy in which currency is utilized only to represent social institutions, dowry, blood money, or fines. This general capacity stands in distinction to more stratified societies, which utilize currency for dues, taxes, and tributes, such as those represented in kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if I had all the time in the world, and I don't, and you're getting sleepy, we would talk about the Neo-Babylonian period, which no way has got any money happening or any kinship circles. Um, Population has dropped by 70%. Or we perhaps would move into the first phase of the Persian period and we'd see in the first phase, phase, we're still in a post-collapse society and there's no way there's any um, interaction going on that could come anywhere close to the health of Deuteronomy society. Or the second phase, which is an imperial economy, which is not only full of money, it's full of coinage. And that coinage is everywhere. And yet Deuteronomy and the settlement period of the Iron One no coinage. So, are you happy to hear this word? In sum, okay, keep going, keep going, I have lots of pictures. In sum, conclusions. By approaching the book of Deuteronomy through an economic lens, We have seen that this book assumes a populace living on small family farms in which the main economy is a mixture of pastoralism and the diversified agriculture of crops native to the hill country. Here, the short-term agricultural investment of grain is paramount and the longer-term economic investment of grapes and oil are also present but not dominant. The domestic beasts named here are the pastoralists' mainstay. We have mixed herds of sheep and goats for milk and meat and wool, the donkey for labor and transport, the ox for cultivation. Interestingly, the gazelle and the wild deer are also very common to the book of Deuteronomy. And I've made Jonathan Greer promise that before he dies, he's going to write an article with me on this. Um, Think about your country relatives and the fact that they hunt every first day. And at least two deer go into the freezer, right? And one of the reasons they do it is to save money at the grocery store. So the gazelle and wild deer, common to these rural fringe areas, frequent our text as well. But we hear nothing of horses, camels, international trade, the mechanisms of international trade, luxury items, imports. The book seems to know nothing about governmental centralization or corvée or tribute that emerged from the same. The Israelite settlements in Deuteronomy are not fortified regardless of what Abraham Faust says. There are no public work systems. Most telling there's a notable absence of currency or money rather transaction and redistribution are described on the local level in terms of simple barter-based in-kind exchange silver is known but in the limited and predictable circumstances of an unstratified society. Even the references to the neshek of silver, the interest of silver and the exchange for silver in the interpolation of Deuteronomy 14 show some movement toward a stratified and redistributive society, but an integrated urban economy, definitely not what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. So what do we conclude based on this profile? Well, if we were to localize this text via the lens of time, the evidence points us to a period astride the Iron 1, Iron IIA transition in the Central Hill Country. This is a society that's moving from the comp- completely utilitarian and subsistence realities of the Iron 1 into the redistributive realities of the Iron 2. As Nam states, here the extended family served as the basic economic unit. Some surpluses allowed the family to exchange with other groups through some level of reciprocity. The spattering of interpolations and anachronisms outside the historical core of the book stand in some contrast to this general picture, reflecting the infiltration of later economic norms, but this is the dominant Voice. A second option is to locate this text via the lens of socioeconomic region. As we all know intuitively, the dominant economy in a society is not the only economy in a society. Think again to those relatives who take out a buck every first day of hunting season and maybe even trade vegetables with a neighbor when their apple tree comes in, who knows? Um, There are different economies built into, different economic zones built into any economy, and David Hopkins speaks of two economic uh, zones in Iron Age Israel. One encompassed the rural life of Palestine, where economic activity was confined within the radius of the small village and its near neighbors. This zone met tangentially with the second zone, that of a more fully developed and interregionally integrated town or urban focused economy. That's all Hopkins. Holiday speaks of this first zone as the household or domestic economy, probably coextensive with the extended family. Theoretically, these sorts of isolated economies continued to exist into the Iron II period. But news is, with the rise of the command economy of Neo Assyria, the likelihood of the continuance of this sort of isolated village economy declines and disappears. And with the minting of coinage in the seventh century, the barter-based economy in Israel is rendered obsolete. Moreover, with the expansion of the nation into the international community in the Iron 2B, the potential that a village law code might somehow be foisted upon the larger nation as a normative means of law, that loses its potential as well. And as regards that Assyrian economy, forget about it. So, in sum, the socio-economic backdrop of the book of Deuteronomy harmonizes best with the national profile of Israel and Judah in that transitional period of the iron 1-2a. Clearly not an iron 2b, although some uh, possibility for the existence of an isolated economy and definitely not the new Assyrian empire era, which would be Josiah's era, uh, according to Bellhausen's theory. And the idea that someone from Josiah's day could flawlessly recreate the economic realities of a bygone tribal and agrarian era is unrealistic at best. The potential that in the pursuit of an intentionally nostalgic and utopian political identity, a post-exilic author could accomplish the same, equally unlikely. Rather, our ur-deuteronomium is best suited to the rural and isolated village economies of the late Iron i A era via an economic lens, and it is here that the genesis of our ur-deuteronomium should be sought.